On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about a new study. Now, why are we talking about another study? Well, one study from McMaster about kids and COVID came out a couple of weeks ago. This one out of Massachusetts seems to say almost the opposite of that. Who then do you trust? What study can you lean on? We'll try and sort that one out. We're going to talk about a new art project in the city of Hamilton to honor healthcare workers who have worked diligently and heroically, there's the word I was looking for, through the COVID crisis. And we will chat about whether or not you really want to see 47, 48, 50, 55 year old boxers back in the ring, because there's another one who's announced he's coming back. All of that is coming up here on the podcast. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You may recall a few weeks ago, we were talking on the show about a new scientific report, a study that was released from McMaster University that said children, especially young children, are not super spreaders of COVID. Uh, if you were listening that night, you will remember. it's a. It was a real good news story. The headline actually was, Kids Are Not Major Source of COVID-19 Spread, McMaster Research Review Finds. Really encouraging. Really important. Doesn't mean kids couldn't get it. Doesn't mean they can't pass it on. It just meant, as you read into it, they were unlikely to cause a massive outbreak at least younger kids particularly. That's what the study said. Well, today, a new study comes out. This one from Massachusetts General Hospital and Mass General Hospital for Children. The conclusion? Well, let me read you the headline. Coronavirus more contagious among children. Study warns kids silently spreading COVID-19. Not only are they saying, are children quite capable of silently spreading COVID-19, they're significantly more contagious than infected adults. Now, this is being described as the worst case scenario. What they found is now the worst case scenario for kids. Let me bring in Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid. He is a doctor. He is a health policy expert. He is someone we have turned to repeatedly since March to sort through the confusing things that are going on with this whole situation. Dr. Khalid, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. Thank you, Scott. You know, as I read those two studies, um, mm -hmm. I am so confused. I don't blame you for being confused, Scott. And I think the majority of the public is confused with sort of different headlines that come out every other day about the evidence. But that just goes to show the state of the evidence currently about COVID-19. It's rapidly changing. It's, you know, I, I recall back when you and I were debating face masks and how fast the evidence was changing there. Now the narrative is around school children, our kids, and how fast are they spreading the disease. To be clear, I was not involved in either of those research projects, but I'm familiar with their findings. The McMaster study really was trying to get at the point that children in general are super spreaders. But when it comes to COVID-19, the numbers of children that were affected by COVID-19 was very low. Uh, that could be attributed to many different reasons. Primarily, which is the most logical one, schools were closed, so kids were not out there. Uh, so they were less likely to get COVID-19. That might change once schools open again. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, these, these are the difficult things that when we try to sort through, I think, I think people are legitimately trying to find out good information. And I further, I absolutely believe that deep down everyone involved in medicine and science is doing their absolute best to figure this whole thing out. It's hard. It's a moving target. It's new. Everybody wants answers immediately. But the, the difficult thing is that when we get these conflicting studies, even as you say, if there are nuances that make them not necessarily conflict, it, boy, it, it really does cause a lot of confusion in the general public. 
Absolutely, and I think this is the difficulty for everybody involved, whether it's the parents of children or whether it's policymakers. I mean, the, the reality is, Scott, is that the evidence around COVID-19 is changing, is being synthesized as the time goes on. This is a new virus. We know very little about it. And also what we failed to do is that we really failed to understand how do we deal with asymptomatic people. So what I mean by that, to be very specific here, is that what do we do about patients and people and children who have COVID-19 but showing no symptoms? To date, seven months in, we still don't really have a very good understanding of the proportion of people that are truly asymptomatic. That is a big concern now when we think about school reopening. How many of our children or our staff members working in schools will come in asymptomatic? Because we don't really, I mean, it it creates its own conundrum because if you're asymptomatic, you may not be going and getting tested. So there could be a whole lot more people, a whole lot higher percentage of the population that has it that we don't even know about. Exactly. And that doesn't mean that we're trying to create, you know, a frenzy around it. What I'm trying to say here is that this is actually reinforces the point of our public health experts when they tell us that we must sanitize things, we must keep doing hand hygiene, keeping social distancing measures as much as possible. The reason behind that is, A, you're trying to prevent uh, COVID-19 from spreading, but also to protect you in case you are asymptomatic and to protect the general public. This whole thing, and, and we're going to take a break in a minute, but uh, we'll get to this first. Um, it, it does, even if we're well-meaning people who are not trying to be idiots about this, it does make us question or wonder which experts we're supposed to listen to. I always go with the assumption that nobody's ill intent. And I know that might be a little bit naive. I believe that everybody's trying to do the best they can when it comes to COVID-19. I think we're all worried for our own safety and for our loved ones. Uh, who do you trust? I think that we just keep a close eye on the evidence and we listen to the experts in the field. You know, I'm a health policy expert. Part of my job currently is to review the evidence of COVID-19 to see what makes sense and what doesn't and to push us to think further around, uh, around it. So that doesn't mean that anybody can come up with conclusive conclusions. It is very naive for any of us to say this is the only way forward. I think mm. evidence around COVID-19 is changing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, here, let me, again, and you raise this because we've got kids who are now going back to school, parents who are debating whether or not to send their kids. It's, pro- it's the, probably the hardest decision in COVID for many people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're an intelligent person. I'm reasonably intelligent. I can go online and look at a story and you know, with usual, with a reasonable degree of intelligence, discern whether I'm reading is legit or a hoax. I'm not going to drink bleach or inject myself with horse tranquilizers or something. Um, but when two highly regarded experts give me dissenting views like this, and I'm trying to decide, do I send my kid to school or not? How do I decide? Well, I empathize. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment of being smart. I don't know about that one, but I appreciate it. I empathize yeah, with true. all the parents. <laughs> I empathize with all the parents out there who are struggling to make that decision. I mean, you nailed it, Scott, with your question, right? I think this is the the most pressing question right now. As a parent, do I send my children to school, especially when there's two studies who are saying relatively different results? I mean, yes, we can uh, argue, as you said earlier, the nuances are, are a little bit different, but essentially they're saying the same. In reality, what they're doing is that we're studying the, the, the COVID-19 and its effect on our children over time, and which is going to lead to different uh, realization. I think the real evidence, if you're asking me about what we should really be looking at, is once we reopen school, because we already made the decision that we will reopen schools, 
that's when it's going to be very interesting. And we also can look at other countries who have already opened their schools to see what is going on. So we have Denmark and Norway, for example, that have reopened parts of their school. Um, and we've seen that actually they did not have a spike in the numbers. Uh, and things seem to be normal. Granted, in those countries, the size of the class is so important. While Israel, on the other hand, when they reopened schools, they actually saw a massive increase in the number of uh, COVID-19 between the children and the staff members, which required them to shut down the economy once again. So you have very different examples from all countries, but I think the rules around how do we reopen schools or the guidelines are still the same. We need increased ventilation, we need physical distancing, we need masks, and we need to create bubbles within those classrooms. I think if we say that to our parents, the parents of children, they're more reassured about how to send their kids back to school. But you could also have very different results in different places in the province. I mean, you could have similar things with different different scenarios just in a different classroom or a different city, correct? Absolutely. You could most certainly you can have it between one school different results between one school to the next on the same block. And what I mean by that, it all depends down on how the school is following the guidelines that are being provided uh, by the Canada Health. Are they really putting in place those measures? I mean, if I make this a little bit more personal, I have two sisters. Well, I have three, but two of them have children. One of my sisters decided that she will send her children back to school. The other one decided against it. Uh, and then we need to accept that, that not all parents will feel the same level of reassurance about sending their children back to school. Right. There's a, a number out today um, that says that in Hamilton here, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board right now in their response online, 77% of parents are saying they're probably going to send their kids back. The rest, not so much. Do we know? Okay, so we've got these two different studies and, and I'll say mm-hmm. it one more time. There are nuances in this. You really have to dive in to really get to the meat of this. What do we know with absolute scientific certainty about kids and COVID? Anything? Is there anything that we can say we know with no question whatsoever? Well, if you're talking about the evidence up to date on the children who got COVID-19, the majority of the evidence is saying that they, if they do get COVID-19, it's not as bad as we thought it would be. So there was a big, you know, early on in the pandemic, we were really concerned that if we start seeing you know, a lot of COVID cases with children, that it's going to be drastic. That's not the case. You know, our ICUs in Canada specifically are not filled with children who have COVID-19. That's not the case. Granted, again, I'll say this possibly because parents, for the most part, have been extra careful with their children. You know, speak to any parent out there. They'll tell you that we're not sending our kids everywhere. We're really trying to be conscious that they don't get COVID-19. And so we do know that. And I tell you that the Massachusetts study you brought up, is valid in that they're saying that they might be silent spreaders. That's true. That's not different than what the evidence already has told us. It, it, historically, children are uh, spreaders, are more contagious than adults with any infectious disease. With All right, COVID-19, so, time will tell us. So let me ask you one more thing. We've got time for one more, and this comes from the Massachusetts study. It says that kids who have it, generally, they the reason they think that they are more... Um, they're silently spreading is because they have a higher viral load. When they get it, they seem to have a lot of the virus in them. How can you have more viral load and have weaker symptoms? Yeah, so I'm not familiar with that finding, but what, what I will tell you is that based on that study, what I thought was very interesting is also we're seeing preliminary results of the receptors that the virus attaches to seems to be not as strong in children than adults. And let me be clear here because that might be a bit too scientific. You and I as adults, we seem to have receptors that COVID-19 likes more or can attach to it better 
than in children. Um, and so the preliminary results of what we're studying seems to indicate that. Uh, and that's probably also another reason why we're not seeing this massive number of COVID-19 cases in children. Now, again, what I'm trying to be very careful here is to not say anything uh, affirmative because come school time opening, this might change, Scott, and we might, you and I might be having a very different conversation then. Oh, we probably will. There may be a third study <laughs> that comes out and we'll have to sort through that one. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, always appreciate your time on this. Thanks for taking it. Of course, happy to speak to you. Take care. Uh, I, I would encourage you to go uh, read a little bit about both of these because look, it is such a difficult decision for parents. There's no question about that. Uh, you can look up again, it's the University of Massachusetts, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital is the one study and the other is from McMaster. Uh, you can find those very easily online. Do a little of your research on your own if you're struggling to make up your mind and decide which one you think is closer or if they can live together and not conflict with each other. That's possible too. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let me just offer a little clarification of something I said last segment. It's not a big, big deal, but just so we're accurate. Uh, the 77% of students who are saying they're returning to class are the Hamilton Catholic Board, not the public board. I said it was the public board, but that's Catholic. We haven't seen the numbers, I don't think yet, for the public board. Small detail, but just want to make sure that I had that one right. There are a lot of things uh, in our world that we can disagree upon these days and frankly do disagree upon. That's our hallmark of our society right now. Let's disagree upon everything. We argue about politics. We argue about social justice causes and how they should be handled. We argue about the people behind them. We argue about music and sports teams and whether to send our kids back to school, as we just discussed. Uh, We argue about wearing masks. There's really nothing we can't argue about. It goes on and on and on and on. If If there's a topic... We can fight about it. That's what we do. One thing, though, that we may be able to step away from that for a minute and agree upon, which is almost a miracle, that there's something that we could agree upon across the board, is the fact that I think everybody, I don't know anyone who doesn't fall into this category, everybody respects the people in the medical field who have put themselves on the front line since March, since this COVID thing started, and have risked their own health to help people in hospitals and clinics on the street, wherever it is. I don't think there's anybody who looks at the medical people, the nurses, the doctors, the PSWs, all the rest and goes, yeah, there was nothing. Not, nobody feels that way. Well, now the city wants to do something to officially recognize these folks and what they've done. Art. They want to create some public art that will honor and recognize and give credit to these people who have done this stuff that has been so good and so appreciated. Ken Coit is the manager of placemaking public art and projects for the city of Hamilton. He joins us now. Ken, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on here. When we talk about public art to honor the medical people, what are we talking about? Well, this is a continuation of um, some street improvements we started last summer which is covering our traffic signal boxes with art by emerging artists. Um, So this year, uh, recognizing where we're at with COVID and the work that these people do, um, we had an opportunity to do some improvements around our hospital sites and thought, uh, along with our friends in transportation operations, that it would be great to do a, a call out to local artists and to emerging artists to come up with some designs for these boxes that would be inspirational and thank our healthcare workers. 
and I mean, it's a good idea because, um, you know, anything can be art, I suppose, but those boxes are not very artistic. <laughs> Covering them up with something is a nice touch because they don't look all that nice by themselves. Yeah, they don't, and they tend to be targets for graffiti. So that's one of the reasons we've been doing these boxes. Started in downtown last year to hopefully expand to other parts in the city. But given what's going on right now, we thought we would focus on the hospital sites um, for this set of, uh, of box, box wraps. Where did the idea initially come from? Because again, you're right, this, obviously you're right, but I mean, this has been done already. We've, we've got some examples of this, but where did the idea initially come from to do something with these boxes? Well, it's, it's something that other cities have been doing, and we've been looking at for a long time, and our friends in transportation operations uh, and, uh, and the graffiti management people last year um, supported, along with the city's Clean and Green Committee, doing them, and they were quite a success. And so this year, um, the uh, transportation, transportation operations people came to us again and said they wanted to continue it, and our... Our manager of planning and economic development, Jason Thorne, said we, we need some projects to support artists through COVID and, and get some money out to, some, uh, to some, art, some struggling artists. And so this was a great way to, to do both. Let me throw a wrinkle into the introduction I gave you a moment ago, because um, I said we all respect medical workers, and I truly believe that we all do. The flip side, though, we're talking about art, and even from the past couple of days with the news stories about that big Black Lives Matter mural on Concession Street, we know not everybody necessarily agrees upon art or has the same taste in art or finds the same art artistic or whatever else. Um, how do we find something that appeals to, if not everybody, to the majority? Well, luckily, in this case, we're picking 15 out of 20. So that makes it a little easier. You don't have to just pick one. And when you're dealing with art, we realize that there's always going to be somebody who you're never going to keep everybody happy. Um, and so we have a, a, a jury, a citizen jury, that actually makes the decision. It's not city staff. Uh, it's a jury of graphic designers. There was two, there's two healthcare workers involved, uh, some members of the city's arts advisory commission. So they have a fulsome discussion of it. And as well, we share it with the public, which we're doing now on online, and we get comments from the public to see which ones resonated the best with, uh, with the public. As far as I checked my email about an hour and a half ago, and we think we already had over 70 people that have been on and provided their comments and selected their favorite, uh, their favorite three out of the 20 boxes. And I'm going to give the website in a moment here so people can look it up and they can give theirs as well, their input as well. Let me ask you this though, you're in an interesting position because I don't know if every city has someone like you who is responsible for art. Are there different criteria when it's public art that's going to be endorsed by the city than if you were at an art gallery or something and seemingly anything goes? Are there certain things that you had to eliminate or make sure we're not there? Oh yeah, because we're out in the public realm, so... You know, we have to have things that are, um, are, what's the word we kind of use? Well, they have to be accessible to people, for sure, and they have to meet basic, you know, standards for being displayed in the public. It's also on city property, so it's political, so we always try and have a process where we're involving the community as much as possible in the decision, either what the theme is, or actually, and in most cases, as we are now, actually commenting on the work before before it's selected and we worry about things you know we don't want inappropriate language used we don't want logos or businesses used we don't want to be promoting a business we don't want it to be advertising 
Um, so there's some basic things like that that we always consider when we're looking at art in the public realm. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Kent, one more thing on this, because just before the break, we're talking about, you know, it can be a challenge at times to find art that people agree on. And even in this city, and now I don't know how long you've been at this particular job within the city, but I can think of in just in the last number of years, there was um, a proposal for some modern art installations down, I think in Ward 2 that created some controversy not that long ago. And before then there was a a statue proposed for a Frankie Venom from Teenage Head that nearly started a a war in the community. I mean, this is, these things that sound very positive and very artistic and very celebratory, uh, they're not always simple. Oh, they never are. In fact, I'm an architect and planner by training, and some of the most complex projects I've done are art projects because they're emotional. They're about us. They're about our history. They're about the place where we live. They're about our home, and and they're public, so people all have a feel they have a stake, and they do. So you have to have a a process that really listens to uh, to people to start and comes up with goals and themes for the project that makes sense for the community. Um, and then you let the artists go at it. They're, they're pretty innovative. When, when the theme and the goal for the project makes sense, like it does, it does in this and it does in many of the others we've done, um, you know, I've been involved in about 20, 25 of these since I started in 2009, um, then the, the artists come up with great things, and the public and, and people often go, wow, what a great idea, I get that, that's about us, that's about our place, that's going to be something that's a bit different and something I didn't expect but it really is going to be a landmark. And, what, what, and sometimes what, when you don't ask people up front, that's when you get in trouble. What, well, what is the piece of art in this city, public art in this city right now that generates, that you hear anyway, the most feedback, pro or con? Well, two years ago we did a survey of all the pieces. The one that got the most, um, the one that was the most popular was Rafaegla Unleashed, which is down on the waterfront by Williams Coffee, uh, the the two figures holding up the sails. Okay. Uh, another very popular one is out at Stony Creek at Battlefield Battlefield House uh, Park, uh, which is the Eagles Among Us, uh, which is an indigenous by an indigenous artist. It's about peace and reconciliation, and that was completed a couple of years before the um, the uh, c- current uh, reconciliation. Um, that the Trudeau government brought in. So, yeah, there's a couple of pieces that are ahead of their time. They've been, they've been complicated, but um, they've really become local landmarks. So what now is the process? We, we have, uh, I think you said 20 finalists that have designed. um, uh, Now, just before I get to that, are, are, have they already painted these things and they are wraps that put on, or if their design wins, they replicate their design with paint and whatever on the boxes? Computer, oh, okay. So it's already done. Exercise. Oh, yes. Uh, sometimes people will, artists will scan work that they've already done. There's a piece by Kyla Whitney that you'll see in the list there that's actually a series of paintings she's already done. So she scanned them into the computer and formatted them so that they work on the boxes. Some people have done art directly for the boxes, the graphic design on the computer. But essentially, they're all digital um, computer-generated images at this point, and they'll provide it, them to the city, and we hire a printer that prints them on the wraps and then installs them on the boxes. 
So what we see is exactly what will be on the box. The yep. website, now I've got the website up here. It's a very long, is there a simpler one here? Or I have the engage.hamilton.ca slash supporting dash healthcare dash public dash art. Is that the one? I just go to hamilton.ca slash public art. That's a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, that's just, and that's all our projects. But you you find on there the supporting healthcare or call or um, public consultation, and the link there will take you to where you need to go. The the all the through. all the offerings that are finalists are here, and and I'll say this: um, I don't pretend to be an art expert or an art aficionado. I'm I think like an awful lot of other people can. I I look at stuff and I go, I like that or I don't like that, and I you know, uh, I've looked at the twenty here. And I can say none of them are ugly or offensive. None of them I would be upset as an average citizen if this was posted. And most of them are really, really cool and perfectly reflective of, I think, what we would want to do if we were to thank our healthcare workers. So, I mean, the the, the choices, it's a pretty tough choice to make because they're all, they could all fit. Yeah, no, that's the idea. So... As well, if you if you click on them, you can look at all sides of the box, and you can oh. also read what the artist said. So there's a statement that goes with each one. Perhaps the most interesting one, there's an indigenous artist, Jeffrey Terenzinski. Um, he has a very interesting story about sage and various other healing um, healing aspects from the indigenous culture that are on his. So each of them has a story as well. So depending on how much you're into it, you can take a look, select your three favorites, um, provide some comments. There's a, if you scroll down to the bottom, that's where you can do that. And um, we will tabulate the most popular ones and run that by the jury and uh, select the 15. Uh, One more time, just before we go, because we're out of time, unfortunately, the website, one more time for people. The really simple one, just hamilton.ca slash public art. And then just look for the Healthcare Boxes project on that page. Ken Coit, who is the man who will be in charge of this, we really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for explaining it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in a guy who, if, if LinkedIn is to be believed, and you know, I'm always a little skeptical about websites and stuff like this. But if LinkedIn is to be believed, this week he has celebrated 10 years of primo employment at CHCHS Sports Guy. Bubba O'Neill, is this correct? Is this your 10th anniversary this week? That's a good, uh, that's a good question. I don't even know. Well, no, and no, no, let me explain why, right? Because it's a kind of complicated question. And, well, not in a complicated, maybe that's a bit much. But it is confusing in a sense. Because I did work here doing, you know, as the weekend sports anchor as a part-time job while I had a full-time job at Sportsnet. So I was there for, you know, Sportsnet for 12 years starting in 19, in, 2000, in the year 2000. So somewhere after that, so I guess 2000 and, you know, you know I, well, I guess it's kind of right that I was full, that I became, so maybe 10 years since I've been full-time here. Well, I really hope that the folks at CHCH knew more about this than you did and threw you a massive blowout. They don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) I would have know. How do they know? (laughs) (laughs) I was expecting Taz to be up on this anchor desk singing to you some sort of (laughs) song about like happy anniversary or something and Phil Perkins 
but doing it, but whatever it, Phil would do to celebrate. Year, but in a way, it's really not a ten-year anniversary because I, te- I technically, 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 I've been here. I can't even speak now. Well, I'm lucky I even have a job. <laughs> you know, but technically, I, I've been here well before that, right? So I don't know. You've been around know. forever, but yeah, no, that's that's all right, all right. Well, I, I, I saw that and I thought. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I never know how accurate those things are. Well, I, I, what I need to do is contact our HR department and really get it. What, what, is a, what is my official start date when I became a full-time employee or from when I first started as a, as a part-timer? That's a great question. Well, that's what we try to do around here. Ask those hard-hitting questions about when is Bubba O'Neill's start date at CHCH. Should, shouldn't I? You know what? Really, when I think about it, shouldn't I know this stuff? I know what my start date was, but I, I, from both my, my full-time jobs, but I, you know, I started at, in Brantford at the newspaper there, December 11, 1989. And I started the spectator on July 23, 1998. Easy. Boom. Like birthdays. But you know, and I'm sure and that I'll be able to tell you the day that I get fired on the room. I'll remember that day too. <laughs> but you know, and yeah, it's funny that you think is I remember my first start date here would have been Sunday, Saturday. Either Saturday or Sunday, September eleventh, two thousand and four. Oh, on a, on an auspicious anniversary. Yes, it was. Yes. Uh, you know, you mentioned September eleventh. Um, not to drag this way off topic, but I pointed out in one of my columns a couple of weeks ago, Nick Robertson, the guy who's the the young player for the Leafs that played in his first NHL games in the playoffs. He was born on September eleventh, like nine eleven, on September eleventh, the day that it happened. That was his birthday. Wow. Yeah, so that's a that's an awkward day to have a birthday. I got yeah, think. that's a that, that's a weird one. Like, I mean, not just even just not even so much for him, but like the whole circumstances of the family and trying to be in a you know in a celebration mode for maybe what might have been. I think he has a brother that's already in the league, but like you yeah. know, anyone you have have a kid and like everyone's in celebration. Like, you know, your whole family's in celebration mode, and the rest of the world's in shock. I have a sister who got married on September 11. So they, there were a, apparently a lot of venues available. It, it, like overall, it's a good day, except for that day, that year. Except for that. Hey, um, let me ask you a question today. You know what I found very odd today? I'm, you know, I work away here at home and I'm getting the show ready and I'm writing for the spec and I'm doing all these other things. But often in the background, I'll have the TV on just to be able to keep up on what's going on. And lately it's been on a sports network and it doesn't matter what time, seemingly day or night, there's a hockey game on. I turned today. There was no hockey. I felt naked. There was no hockey during the day. <laughs> well, apparently teams get eliminated, right? <laughs> right? But you know you what? Lose. It, but but it, it, it made a point to me. It made a point. And I, I don't know if you share this. Every other year in the playoffs, you have all these games that are going on, but they all overlap. They make them all play in the evening. And then you don't get, you only get to see the one. We always say that when things happen, when leagues have something go on and necessity is the mother of invention. I hope the invention that comes out of this is in future playoffs. The league says, this is what we want to do. Let's make it March Madness style so we can see all the games rather than having them all on at the same time. I, I, you, I find that hard to kind of argue, Scott, because it has been a cornucopia. It's, it's, like, it's like mixing chili. Like you throw everything together. <laughs> it's been fantastic. You mean, and you combine the NBA with the same, doing the same sort of thing, games, just constant action. And with the 10-30 game, which the NBA starts a little earlier, their final game from the bubble, because they are Eastern Standard Time, 
you're getting games, especially when they go into overtime, that are going to 2 in the morning. So you're right. It starts at 12 in the afternoon and could go to 2 in the morning. It's just nonstop sports. And I don't know if it's going to kill marriages or what, but it's been, it's, for guys like me, it's been outstanding. And you're right. It, it is something to consider. I don't know, and we'd have to see this, because the ratings, apparently the ratings are not nearly as good as Sportsnet or as Rogers had promised the advertisers, because they always give them numbers that we expect to get, but they've been better than a lot of people expected them to be, considering it's the middle of August and we're now back into hockey. But I look at this thing and I think, so I don't know what the what the overall percentage ratings are for each game because sometimes if you put them all in the evening prime time you're going to get a higher number of people watching that particular game but i have to believe if you're just counting not percentages but counting eyeballs that are watching hockey spreading it out like this you're getting a lot more people watching some of it during the day well i think but we also have to remember here that we're here on the east coast right and i think we 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 have that old east coast bias sometimes because Really, a game at, what, 12 o'clock in the afternoon here? Does that make a lot of sense for someone out west at 9 o'clock in the morning? Beautiful. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. Beautiful. And Cheerios, coffee, and hockey. Wow. Let's also forget, too, that this is a different year, right, with the COVID crisis that we've all been dealing with and that leagues are just basically doing whatever they can to make things work, right? How fair would that be? And remember, the NHL not not like this. Not as much as the CFL, but the NHL is a gate-driven league, and without without fans in the stands, right? Like, I mean, are you going to get fans in Phoenix at you know basically one o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday? I well, don't think so. not. But you can you can do it, it with the here. different time you can do, zones. You can do any time here in Toronto. But there are most of the markets in the United States, Carolina, even good teams. You know, Florida's, I'm sorry, the Tampa Bay's, they're going to struggle with attendance. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, you, I think that it would, I think it would certainly be worth a look, especially when you consider, and again, I use the March Madness example. They have no problem bringing people in for that. Doesn't matter how long, because they go all day at the arenas. And, you know, I, I think it would be worth a try because I think, I think this is something people have really latched onto is this idea that, man, I can watch a game any point during the day. I can tune in, I can tune out, I can come, I can go, but I'm watching hockey. And I'm not sure how many people really expected they'd be watching hockey in August. Yeah, I, again, I agree with you, but I think it's a very area-biased opinion that you that you may have there. Maybe. And again, and I just don't think that it's realistic to think that, again, if, you, if you're going to tell me that the, the, the playoffs adopt, and remember, March Madness is no different too. You're playing three to four games in the same arena. Right, but that's that will not be the case, you know. Post COVID, post COVID for NHL teams, they'll be back to their regular arenas, and you need. I mean, you're looking at the Maple Leafs that are. I think, if I, I read correctly and through some research, make about 1.2 million dollars per home date. Right, uh, that kind that that kind of money cannot be toyed with if you're in St. Louis or if you're in Carolina, or if you're in, in Minnesota, right? Again, with games being played on a weekday at a strange time. So if you're going to adopt some type of uh, hub city thing for, for, for games, I think it works, but not on a regular basis, Scott. There's no way. If the Ducks, if the Ducks, imagine if the Ducks have to play on a Wednesday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, but that, I mean, so that, you know, but you do it, you do it differently so that it's, you know, they're not playing at 11 a.m. or something, but yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a thought. I, I hope they will try and figure out how to do this, but 
we'll see. Let me throw another one at you here because I just read this before we came on the air and I thought it was a joke. And then I realized, no, of course it's not a joke because everybody's doing this. Oscar De La Hoya, 47 <laughs> years old, retired for 15 years now, yeah. says he's coming out of retirement to box again. Now he looked horrible in his last few fights. He oh. looked like he was beaten up badly. He was getting a little slurry, it sounded like. But you know what? He's coming back. We've got Tyson back at what, 55 years old, 56. Holyfield wants to come back. You got Roy Jones coming back. I Like how bad is the current crop of boxers that these guys all feel they can step back in and draw an audience and they can. Well, Scott, I think again, that, that, that I don't know if that's fair really, because I, I think, I mean, I, I actually still am a, a fan of boxing and you know what boxing is where it is in the sporting landscape is certainly not where it was back in the seventies when it was, you know, when you were the heavyweight champion of the world, you were the most popular athlete in the world. I mean, and I could say that to Joe Lewis, Floyd Patterson, Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, even as times. Times have changed, right? Uh, but the, I'm telling you right now, boxing is very good right now. There is a lot of good boxers out there. It's just not promoted to the, where it used to be back in the day. You have to also remember that the, what Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. are doing is an exhibition. They're not fighting for titles. Um, none of these guys are. They're going out there and doing a little simple exhibitions for, for charity, and, and nothing more than that. So, because if any of those guys stepped into a ring to a, a modern-day heavyweight or a modern-day middleweight, which I would be, uh, I think Oscar De La Hoya would be, these guys would be might need Killed. an ambulance. No, no, I, I, no, a hundred percent, hundred percent. The difference though, and you, I think you just alluded to it is that th they may not be, well, they certainly are not as good physically as they were in their prime. They would not be able to compete. But I think if I was to ask the average person, Bubba, right now, name me three of the top current heavyweights in the world. The top contenders, either the champions or the top contenders, I think mm, some people would be able to come up with Tyson Fury and maybe some with Deontay Wilder. And after that, nope. No, I mean, they just, they, and, serious and, and, boxing and, fans can, but there's, there's, no, there's so little buzz around the sport right now, even though the guys are good. See, but I'll tell you, the guys that watch boxing all the time will tell you that's incorrect and that it's a very... Um, sort of fandom way of thinking. Like, and, and, and it just goes to what I was saying. The sport is not where it was once was. I mean, it, it just isn't. Um, the big fights, the big money fights that will come out will always draw big. It's just the way it is. Like every once in a while, maybe once every year or two, there's a fight that interests a lot of people and people get out there and get the, the pay-per-views and they're still as big as they ever will, would be. Bigger. They, bigger they, once they in a while. Well, bigger, the money's bigger, bigger now. You're, but you're right but you answered... Bigger. You answered your own point though. You answered your own point. And that is the guys who are really big into boxing will tell you it's better than it's ever been. And they know all the guys. I don't disagree with that at all. That's a hundred percent true. But once upon a time, even 20 years ago, there was not a person alive who would not have known who Mike Tyson was yeah. or who didn't know the name Lennox Lewis or didn't know the name Evander Holyfield. And that name recognition does not exist now for the current crop, except for maybe a handful throughout the different weight classes. But that's just changed. That's just changed, Scott. Like, like there was a time in our lifetime 
not all that long ago, and, and people older than us would back this up, when it, the thought, the actual thought that the National Football, Football League that would ever be bigger than Major League Baseball would have been a, la- a joke, a laugh. Major League Baseball right now is appealing to people any, anywhere from 45 and up, right? It, times change. Right, it's just it's the way things have flipped around in terms of what we like and and and, hey, remember people used to leave the United States, good football players to come to Canada and the CFL (laughs) because you you could make more money, right? Times change and 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 the popularity of sports change, the scene changes, and I think that's where boxing is right now. It's got its niche little crowd. As I said, every once in a while, once a year, you get these big money fights that really kind of piques the curiosity of a lot of people. And we all sit there and watch a fight and say, wow, why can't boxing be like that anymore? Well, it just isn't. Right? It, 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 I don't know what the answer is or how you change that, but I just don't think you can. It's just, it's just not in the sporting landscape of what it once was. And, again, I'll use baseball as an example for that because baseball is certainly not where it was, once was 20 years ago. Well, once upon a time, sportscasters used to leave Sportsnet to go to CHCH, and that was only about 10 years ago, <laughs> give or take a day or two. So, Bob O'Neill from CHCH celebrating, we think, his 10th anniversary full-time at CHCH, although that's a bit of a mystery. But stay tuned to watch, because when he figures this out, I'm sure he will get the entire staff to fet him in glorious ways. Always appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll go look at the CKCO in Kitchener. <laughs> what? Take another move? Oh, I don't get that channel. You can't go. Uh, that's Bob O'Neill. Watch him tonight on TV. Thanks. Oh, always a pleasure, buddy. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.